what is the price of gas right now that you're pumping? It's uh, seven bucks basically. Yeah. And where are you at right now? I'm at, uh, what is it? ExxonMobil. That's insane. They're like a triple. Since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine late last month, hundreds of civilians have died and over two million Ukrainians have fled the country. Sanctions imposed by the European Union are sending economic shockwaves across the world. Here in the United States, we're already feeling the cost of Russia's war in a place none of us can escape, the rising price of oil. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Friday, March 11th, 2022. Today, we look into how global conflicts upend global energy supplies and efforts to fight climate change, how gas prices keep getting higher and higher and might continue to rise, and what could be done about it. Here to talk about all of this are two of my LA Times colleagues. Sammy Roth covers energy. Don Lee covers the U.S. and global economy. Sammy, Don, welcome to the Times. Hey, Hi, Gustavo. Don, let's start with you. The Biden administration announced a ban on importing Russian oil and natural gas earlier this week because of what's happening in Ukraine. So what does that all mean? Yes, you're right, Gustavo, that President Biden did announce a ban on U.S. imports of all Russian oil products. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That was anticipated in recent days. There's been bipartisan pressure from Congress to make this move. And of course, Ukrainian officials have for days been pleading with the U.S. and its allies to block all Russian oil. We made this decision in close consultation with our allies and our partners around the world, particularly in Europe, because a united response to Putin's aggression has been my overriding focus. Russia gets 50% of its export revenue from oil, and people see it as financing, subsidizing his war on Ukraine. And so this move that Biden made was certainly anticipated by the markets. Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, the price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. He said that he was making the move knowing that allies, particularly in Europe, might not be joining. We're moving forward with this ban, understanding that many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. The United States produces far more oil domestically than all of European, all the European countries combined. In fact, we're a net exporter of energy. So we can take this step when others cannot. Because they are much more dependent on oil and Russian energy for their needs And unlike the U.S., they're not largely energy independent. Everywhere I drive here in Southern California, I see gas prices higher than ever. But it's been like that for a while. But ever since the invasion of Ukraine, they're increasing even faster. So what's the connection between the two? Yeah, well, as you said, gas prices were already rising before all the uproar in Ukraine. Because... We've been recovering from the pandemic. People have been consuming more gas and producers have been slower or not fast enough to produce. And so we were seeing rising prices. 
Gas prices rose eight cents a gallon this week, which puts the average price at three dollars and forty-two cents a gallon. Houston is the low in our panel of cities at two seventy-nine. San Francisco Bay is the high at four seventy-four. And prices are expected to continue to go up, and that almost always has to do with the price of oil, which is now ninety-three dollars a barrel. And then we had, you know, supply chain bottlenecks,、uh, of course. And then you had the invasion and the days leading up to it. Over the last days, we have seen a significant movement of Russian military forces into Belarus. This is the biggest Russian deployment there since the Cold War. As we know, Russia is a major producer of gas and oil. It's in the top three, and. The global oil markets are global, and when there's a threat of、uh, disruption of supplies, you're going to have not only investors but speculators and others hoarding. And so we've just had pressures that have pushed up prices even more. Spokesman Andrew Gross says the oil market doesn't respond well to volatility. He calls the Ukraine crisis an explosive situation. And a grim reminder that what happens elsewhere in the world can affect American consumers. People fearing that Russian oil could face an embargo, or there could be some sort of reduction in Russian oil going into the markets. Well, how does the world's petroleum system even work? You know, the U.S. over the last ten,、uh, fifteen years has made tremendous strides with fracking, as you mentioned, and we produce a lot of oil. It's just that. You know the kind of crude, the grade of crude that we produce, isn't enough for what we need. And so, even though we're largely independent, we still import a fair amount. But we need oil. You know, whether it's heavy grade or in California and the West Coast, we need you know light, sweet type of oil. And these are not things that are easily produced as much.、Uh, and you have transportation, logistics issues. So. Because of all that, we still import, and we're part of the global market. So the question that most Americans are going to have in light of this ban: Does that mean gas prices are going to go higher or lower, and how quickly? Well, unfortunately, the bad news is that gas prices are going to go higher, and people I know have already been feeling it because prices have been moving up very rapidly in the last couple of weeks, particular, and in recent days, in anticipation. Of the U.S. banning Russian oil imports, prices have been going up, and you know Russia accounts for about ten percent of the world's oil needs, and it is the second largest net exporter of oil. And so you're talking about seven million oil and oil products being potentially taken off the market. Which would have a big effect on global supplies, and because oil prices are set globally, in anticipation of that, as well as actual cutoffs of Russian exports already, because companies like Shell and others、uh, are announcing that they're going to stop doing business, right? And so we've already had a slowdown in Russian exports of oil, and so that's all contributed to the run-up in prices. Now, how fast will prices go up? Well, you know, usually there is a lag, usually two to three weeks lag between crude oil price changes and what refineries pass on to consumers. And so, oil prices—they're already hitting record highs. On Thursday, the national average jumped just about seven cents, and it's now four thirty-two a gallon. 
that means Californians are probably paying, you know, between five to six dollars. And experts are expecting that to climb to or fifty and even higher in the very near term in the coming days. So it's uh, unfortunately consumers are going to have to shell out more at the filling stations. We'll be right back. Before the break, we were talking about the global energy supply chain with Don Lee, our economics reporter. But now let's bring in Sammy Roth, who covers energy. And Sammy, when I hear about this current energy crisis that we're in, older folks will remember or bring up the 1973 oil crisis. What happened back then? Yeah, it's definitely hard not to think about that right now. I mean, the first thing, as you said, in 73, there was the invasion of Israel and the Yom Kippur War. Egyptian forces crossed the Suez Canal and established footholds in the Israeli-occupied Sinai Peninsula. And that resulted in the Arab countries, the OPEC countries, putting on an embargo and, and not sending oil to the United States anymore. The Carter administration's chief inflation fighter, Alfred Kahn, has reacted with outrage but not surprise at the latest boost in Arab oil prices. And that created this situation with, you know, hours-long lines at gas stations and rising prices, and people were pretty freaked out. And there was a, a smaller version of it a couple of years later with the Iranian Revolution in, in 79 that also cut down on global oil supplies and led to price shocks. And that was really what started this whole conversation. Basically, every president since then, going back to Nixon and then Carter in the 70s, and, and everyone since has talked about energy independence, that we need to produce more of our own oil in the U.S., that we need uh, alternative renewable sources such as solar and wind, that we need to be more efficient. It definitely changed the way that Americans think about energy. If the Iranian uh, production is not restored in the next number of months, uh, our shortage in this country could go as high as uh, 5, 6, or 7%. When that oil crisis came in the 1970s and the U.S. realized, like, wow, oil is finite, how did the American government react? Well, they tried to do a lot of different things, again, starting with, with sort of Nixon and Carter. They took steps to produce more oil and gas in the United States, to loosen price caps and to make it easier to drill here. That had somewhat of an effect, but really what made America the oil and gas superpower it is today was the advent of fracking, as you mentioned earlier, and, and really in the you know late 2000s and into the 2010s, the shale gas revolution. And so that's made the U.S. one of the largest exporters of oil and gas in, in the world today and the largest producer of both of those things. Other stuff that happened in the 70s, there were early investments in solar and wind and other clean energies. Didn't take off right away necessarily, but there were investments and research centers set up then that sort of helped us get where we are today, where, where those energy sources are quite prominent and low cost. And you think about the 1970s and energy, a lot of times people also think about Jimmy Carter. What did he propose when he was president and what ended up happening? It was a lot of what I was just talking about, more oil and gas production, use of renewables. He, he did the famous thing where he went on TV and wore a sweater as a way of signaling that we needed to be more efficient and use less and sort of be less wasteful. Again, none of that stuff really took off right away in the way that he wanted, but it did kind of put us on the road to where we are now. Although, as Don said, we still do live in a global energy system. This idea of energy independence, even with the U.S. as the largest oil and gas producer in the world, we still are very dependent on other countries, and, and that doesn't seem like it's going to change. And even if we do manage to switch over from fossil fuels to clean energy, which is what's needed for climate change, that's still going to be a global energy system. There's not going to be total immunity from stuff happening elsewhere. 
Sammy, there's been a lot of talk about getting us into more renewables so we don't have to rely so much on oil and gas. But in the meanwhile, how is the American government reacting? Because I know that President Biden just released something like 30 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Reserve to try to help us on this. That's right. He's tapping the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which, by the way, was one of the things that came out of the 70s. That's when we created the Petroleum Reserve And you've got oil and gas companies and and a lot of Republicans in Congress calling for loosened restrictions on on fossil fuels on federal lands and build more gas export terminals. It seems like some of this could help a little bit in the short term, like tapping the oil reserve will probably have an effect on dampening down prices or at least stopping them from getting too much higher. When you talk about more production on federal lands and more drilling permits, that's going to take a while to really have an impact. That's not something that's going to help with the immediate And when you think about this stuff, you've really got to keep climate in mind. I mean, we've got this climate imperative, and I think that any strategy that doesn't take that into account is not going to be a winning strategy, ultimately. Don, President Biden is looking to do his own energy reset, kind of like how President Carter did back then. What's Biden's plan to combat high gas prices? Well, I think, as Sammy mentioned, releasing the nation's strategic reserves will be very helpful. And in fact, if there is a deal in the negotiations with Iran over its nuclear program, then that could release additional crude supplies. And then if Saudi Arabia, which has some spare capacity, if it picks up production, and you know, (laughs) the U.S. has been quietly talking with Venezuela, which is an ally of Russia and is under U.S. oil sanctions, but the U.S., could see Venezuela as someone that could come in and fill in some of the lost oil supplies from Russia. So for all these reasons, the U.S. could help mitigate prices by having more oil that's thrown into the world markets. But it's a short-term solution. Sammy mentioned earlier how President Carter's proposals weren't immediately embraced, but the United States ended up adopting them. But of course, Carter was a one-term president because the energy issue wasn't solved immediately. So, Don, what lessons do you think Biden can learn from Carter? Well, if you remember in the Carter administration, one of the things that really did hurt him was his response to the Iranian hostage crisis, right? And that was a factor in the U.S. embargo of oil. And we had very high inflation, I think, Back in 79, the spring, you know, a year after the Iranian revolution, inflation uh, started to pick up quite a bit. It was at 7% or so. And we're at high inflation now. We're at 7.5% for consumer price inflation. And oil prices, rising prices, are going to keep pushing that up. And Biden is very mindful of that because people are upset. They've been unhappy with the pandemic and they're just in a foul mood and paying more for meat and at the gas pumps is making them even more unhappy. And so that is a concern, uh, especially in the midterm coming up. More after the break. So, Don, before the break, we're talking about this transition to energy independence for the United States and how we've been trying to achieve it one way or another for the past 40 years. But 
What would be sort of the short-term problems to getting that? Because as Sammy mentioned earlier, we might want to get to renewables, but it takes a long time to try to transition even people's mindsets into a quote-unquote new style of getting energy. Well, the United States and its production and supplies of oil, we don't operate in a vacuum. We're part of the global oil market. We have you know, separate prices, of course, for crude in the U.S., but it tracks the global benchmark prices. And so I think you know, for the foreseeable future, we are going to be part of the global petroleum system. And because of the needs that we have of types of oil that we need to import, I think we still depend a bit on foreign oil and we should formulate our policies so that we can best manage that. Sammy, experts you've talked to have argued that if we want to get away from the political and price point volatility of oil, that we got to focus on clean energy. Yeah, I mean, I've been talking with security and climate experts about this. And, you know, really what it comes down to, Europe is super dependent on Russian natural gas and Russian oil, though somewhat less so. And long term, if you don't want to be vulnerable to the vagaries of Russian geopolitics and oil and gas supply, um, you've got to be less dependent on fossil fuels. And there's obviously the huge climate reason for that as well. When you talk to the, the national security apparatus, to the Pentagon, to the Defense Department, they've been pretty serious about climate change for a long time. They say it's a threat multiplier. They say it destabilizes countries that are prone to instability, that it can fuel refugee flows and crises that redound in ways that affect the United States. So there are all sorts of reasons in the sort of national security and geopolitics world why people are looking to transition away from fossil fuels. Climate is one of them. This crisis with Russia and the dependence on Russian oil and gas sort of adds to that. And when you look at how the European Union is responding, they were already talking about, you know, what is our strategy for getting off of Russian gas and oil and and advancing clean energy. And just this week, they came out with their new strategy, accelerated by what's happening with Ukraine right now, where they're talking about, here's how we're going to dramatically reduce use of fossil fuels, use more solar, invest in green hydrogen, become more energy efficient. Europe is starting to have this conversation. It's hard, as you've said, but it needs to happen for a variety of reasons. Finally, for the two of you, We mentioned in the 1970s, the oil embargo, the Iranian revolution. Do either of you see what's going on in Ukraine as a wake up call for the United States and really the world when it comes to energy? Well, I mean, in theory, it should be. Again, when you look at the sort of climate catastrophes that are already happening and layer this on top, it's definitely the kind of thing that I think ought to make people think, gee, maybe we really ought to evaluate how quickly we should be transitioning away from oil and gas here. Whether that happens is hard to say. It could also distract people from that. But I think that would be a pretty reasonable response. Don? Well, it certainly has been a wake-up call for Europe, as Sammy mentioned, because of its huge dependence on Russian gas in particular for countries like Germany. For the United States, you know, we are a part of the global energy market. We're closely with allies and you know, Europe's problem is not isolated to itself. And so I think having partnership and continuing to discuss how to address these sort of global production and supply shocks and to better manage. And I think, you know, we're also at a point where we could be facing some major tectonic shifts if, in fact, Russian oil and gas shift to, say, other Asian countries, China and India and Vietnam and others that may be more friendly toward it. And if that's the case, then, 
you know, that's going to reorient the global supply and pattern, and that's also going to be transformative. And so we have to consider how that's going to play into both the geopolitics and the economics of for America. Sammy and Don, thank you so much for this conversation. You're welcome. Thanks, Gustavo. It's been good to be with you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Next week, our country's battle over abortion, China's growing influence in Central America, and more. Shannon Lynn was a jefe on this episode, and our show is produced by Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Ashley Brown, Angel Carreras, and Shannon Lynn. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back next week with all the news in this matter. Gracias. Gracias.